Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Amen. Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 7, where we left off last week. If you're visiting with us for the first time today, it's our custom to work through books of the Bible primarily, and we're working through the Gospel of John, and we're in the middle of John chapter 7, and we're going to finish, Lord willing, John chapter 7, although next week we're going to circle back and handle just a few verses that we're going to brush over quickly because there's a beautiful truth that I want you to see. So we're going to take two more weeks in John 7, although we'll go through the end of the chapter today. As you're finding John 7, let me just remind you about tonight. If you're a member of the church, I'd love for you to come out where uh, the elders are recommending that we adopt a new statement of faith, which really isn't a new statement of faith. In fact, it's a very historic statement of faith. That came out of churches like us in our stream uh, in the mid-1800s, and it's really just a statement of faith that flows out of the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s and then into England in the 1600s. And we think that this statement of faith is not different than anything that we already believe, but it's a little bit more historic, and it's a little bit more concise, and it's a little easier for us to teach from and to disciple Uh, people from. And so we're going to work through, I'm going to just explain in a little bit more detail tonight the rationale for it and then answer any questions that you may have. And uh, we, if needed, we'll do more of those sessions if we feel like there are more questions that you have. So we'd love to see you tonight at six. You were emailed out. If you remember, you received that that statement of faith via email, but we'll have copies tonight. Well, we left off on verse 24 last week, and we're picking up in the middle of this chapter. And remember how I told you last week that John 7 is one of those chapters that if you were just picking randomly a passage to preach out of the Bible, and you're a preacher, um, this probably wouldn't be the chapter that you go into except for a few verses that we'll circle back on next week. It's because this is really just a narrative. It's a description of the events in Jesus' life at this time. And remember, the difference between John's gospel and the first three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is that John's gospel is not so much concerned with giving a kind of chronological narrative of the life of Jesus, but more of centering on certain themes, kind of looking at several theological themes in Jesus' life, a kind of greatest hits, if you will, of the statements and the acts of Jesus during his ministry, because John's burden, not that the others don't have this burden as well, but the burden of John's gospel, and he tells us at the end, is that we might believe and believing have life in his name. So in a sense, John is is very evangelistic in his concern, and he's wanting to make sure that people understand who Jesus is and what he faced. And right now, in John 7, the issue really is the mounting opposition to Jesus, and it's a kind of narrative. And so I think, in a sense, you could maybe preach all of John 7 in just one setting. Uh, but you guys know I, I wouldn't do that. And so we're going to look at 
verses 25 through 52, and here's what I want us to notice as we're going through this lengthier passage. I want you to notice primarily two things. I want you to notice the rejection of Jesus by various peoples and groups, religious leaders, common folk, everyday people. Notice the rejection of Jesus, and then, and I think this is really the the kind of the heart of what I want us to get out of this passage, I want you to notice the hidden hand of God's providence, specifically in the life of Jesus, and then ultimately we're going to make application, Lord willing, to our own lives. So notice the rejection of Jesus, and notice the hidden hand of God's providence in this passage. So let's start reading in verse 25. I'm going to read and stop and make some points, but then we'll settle down on, on these two points that I want us to see. Verse 25, some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this man the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know Now listen to the confidence here that they have, that they think they understand who Jesus is and what he's all about. But we know where this man comes from and when the Christ appears. No one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed in verse 28 as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. Accord. He who sent me is true and him is you do not know. So Jesus, in a sense, agrees with him. Yeah, you know me in a sense, but you don't ultimately understand my origins, and you certainly don't know the one that sent me. Obviously, he's referring to God the Father. I know him, verse 29, for I come from him, and he sent me. Verse 30, so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Note that verse. We're going to circle back verse 30 in a bit. Yet many of the people believed in him, and they said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? So let's just pause there and just note the confusion, the misunderstanding, the people that think they understand who Jesus is, but don't ultimately do understand who he is and ultimately what he's come to do. There is confusion about Jesus. They were familiar with him in a sense, but not nearly as familiar with him as they thought they were. They were walking in a kind of spiritual ignorance. Verse 32, back to the text. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. So Jesus is causing a stir He's, he's upsetting their status quo. Remember, he was a threat. We've said this several times. He was a threat to their religious stronghold and power system, and so they're wanting to arrest him. Verse 33, Then Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. So obviously he's saying, I'm only going to be... Jesus knows what the future is going to be. In fact, we are, even though we're early on in the Gospel of John, we've got another you know, 14 chapters or so, We're actually quite late in the timeline of Jesus' life and his uh, his movement towards Jerusalem and then his ultimate crucifixion is actually quite near in the timeline. So he's saying, it's it's coming soon and then I'm going to the Father. 
He's referring, obviously, to his resurrection. Verse 34, you will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? So again, let's pause there and just notice there's more confusion. Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm going away. They obviously don't understand what that means. And they, they surmise in verse 35 that maybe he's going to, and the phrase there that you may not be familiar with, they say that he's going to the dispersion amongst the Greeks. What's that referring to? Well, towards the end of the Old Testament, uh, during the time of the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, God's people were taken into captivity because of a consequence of their rebellion against God. Because of their rebellion against His law, God gave them into the hands of these foreign nations, first the Babylonians and then the uh, Persians and then the Assyrians. And so we're talking several hundred years before the time of Christ, towards the end of the Old Testament, God's people, Jerusalem, the Jews, were, Jerusalem was, 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 was overtaken and God's people were taken away. That's what's going on, like for example, in the book, the Old Testament book of Daniel, where Nebuchadnezzar comes and he, he basically takes hostage all of the, 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 the strong and capable uh, Jewish uh, young men and carries them away into captivity. And so, as a result of that captivity and that defeat, God's people were scattered really all throughout the known world at the time, and that was called the dispersion or the scattering as a consequence of their disobedience of the Jews. In fact, just to give you a kind of tie it together in your mind biblically, on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, when all of these Jewish people are coming back to Jerusalem to uh, commemorate the Feast of Passover, and Peter gets up and the Holy Spirit falls and there are all these foreign languages that are being spoken. It's actually Hebrews, Jews, that are gathering there in Jerusalem, but they're speaking other languages because they've been, for centuries now, been carried off into captivity and they're coming back and they're hearing the Word of God miraculously preached to them in their own language. And so that's what, that's what the dispersion is. So at this point here, these Jews, Jewish people are wondering, well, is he, is he going away to teach our brothers and sisters who have been carried away into captivity centuries before? So what's going on? I just want us to notice here, there's lots we could say, but just for the purposes of this morning, just notice the rejection of Jesus. That's the theme of John chapter 7 and really John chapter 8. Many people, in fact, most people, had a false understanding of who Jesus was. They thought they knew who he was, but they didn't. And so it is today, friends. Many people think that they know him, and they don't truly know him. In fact, I think this is a kind of plague. It's a kind of spiritual, conditional plague on our culture. Because we are, and I'm, I'm using air quotes here, in a kind of Christian culture 
where often truth and the good news of the gospel is assumed, and I think it's particularly the case in our region of the country, people think because they have a loose association with something religious or some connection with the church, they think they understand Jesus, but they don't. Friends, this is why it is so important for us to be a church that is thoroughly, unashamedly, but humbly and winsomely and warmly and kindly, but clearly biblical. Because we live in a culture that is confused about Jesus. And just having a loose association with a church, or just kind of knowing, or just maybe having attended Sunday school or a VBS when you were younger, will not suffice on the day when we have to stand before the Lord. People need to know Jesus. They need to know who He is and what He's done. And they all need to know who we are by nature in front of a holy God apart from Jesus. And this is where church life and preaching and teaching and doctrine gets a little bit more thorny because everybody, most people anyway, are willing to accept a kind of merciful Jesus, a grace-filled Jesus. But we don't understand who we are before God apart from Jesus. And the Bible is very clear. In fact, friends, this is the heart of the gospel. This is the heart of the Christian faith. You must know this. And one of our burdens as a church is that you clearly understand this, that everybody that walks through these doors clearly understands this. And by the way, if you're hearing this message for the first time today, if you're hearing this truth that I'm about to give you for the first time today, I want you to know that that those of us that have been trusting in this message and believing in the same Jesus, we also need to be reminded of this message daily and weekly. That's why we get back together, not because we're experts, but because we find ourselves more needy than ever to remember who we are. And here's the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that God is holy and he has created everything that is for his glory, but we, all of us, every single one of us, from every nation and tribe and tongue, every culture, from the beginning of time until now, we have all in our own ways rejected God and rebelled against him. And the Bible says that as a result of our sin, that's our offense, that's our, that's our disobedience of God's ways and law. The Bible says that because of that sin, it's not like it's just neutralized us and made us less than we all could be, but it has cut us off from God and put us, and I know, friends, we don't naturally think of ourselves this way, but the fact that we don't naturally think of ourselves this way is actually a consequence of what this sin has done to us. This sin has so polluted our minds, it has, the Bible calls it, it spiritually killed us. It's made us unable to really truly understand how holy God is and how far from Him we are in our natural state. And so we are, we're spiritually incapable. There's nothing we can do. We, we can't decide to be good enough. We can't, we can't grit our teeth and work our way into heaven. And really, we're in this, we're in this state of helplessness before a holy God. And here, here's... It's bad news, but, but, but it's kind of leveling good news in that, friends, none of us are exempt from this. Rich folks, poor folks, smart folks, 
not so smart folks uh, from any culture, from any, wherever, you know, we're all, we're all, we're all the same by nature. Helpless before a holy God. But God in his kindness, and this is the story of the Gospels, has sent Jesus, God the Son, God in the flesh, the second person of this triune God who is three in one, God, Father, and Holy Spirit. That's a great mystery, but we see God as one, but he's three persons. The second person of the Trinity, God the Son, who has existed forever, the beginning and the end, has become a person just like us in human history. And he came and he lived a perfect life where you and I, every one of us, have rebelled against God. Jesus perfectly obeyed God. And then he laid down willingly his life on the cross to bear the punishment and the wrath of God that should have been ours. And because Jesus is not merely a perfect good man, but because he is also the infinitely holy son of God himself in the flesh, he has enough holiness, enough grace, and an infinite measure of holiness and capacity to absorb, extinguish, remove, satisfy, take away all of the wrath of the Father on the cross. And Jesus does that. That's the good news of the gospel. Not just that Jesus is dying on the cross as an example of love or, or, or sacrifice. All those things are true. But even more primary, Jesus on the cross is doing something for his people. He is bearing, absorbing extinguishing, removing, taking the punishment that should have been ours. And he removes it as far as the east is from the west, the Bible says. He puts it into the sea of forgetfulness. And then he rises again from the grave because he wasn't being punished for his sin but for ours. So he's, he's, he's brought back from the dead, vindicating his holiness, vindicating his status as the Son of God, and he rises from the grave, triumphant over sin, death, and the grave as the risen, victorious King, and now graciously calls all of us, every single one of us, to turn from our own righteousness, to turn from our disobedience, to turn off from all these false pleasures that we just sort of trinkle around with, and to put our hope and our trust in Him, and if we do that, and that alone, that will reconcile us to God, and we will be with Him forever. We will be His, and nothing will be able to snatch us from the Father's hand from now until eternity. Friends, that, I want you to hear that. I want you to know that you, you must believe that to be a Christian. Jesus is not the false gospel we hear preached in some of our culture today, that He's just kind of an ethic, or He's a good teacher, or He's some sort of add-on that will give you a happy life or make you more successful or wealthier or healthier. Friends, that's not the biblical Jesus. And I don't want you to misunderstand him. And I, I don't want you to think you know him and not know him. You must know what I just said about Jesus. You must know that God is holy. It, you, like every other person by nature, is a sinner and accountable to a holy God. And that you must trust in Jesus alone for your right standing with Him. And if you do that, the Bible says 
that you are his, that he's made you his, that you turn from yourself, repentance, and you put your hope in Jesus, that's faith, you are saved. These people misunderstood that. I hope that we don't. Verse 37 through 39, okay, this is a little segment that, this is a little segment that we're going to circle back to next week because it, it is so important. There's so much going on here, but let me just read it. I'm going to be tempted to dabble into it, but hold me accountable. You know, start, start hissing or something if I go on too long. Verses 37 through 39, because we're going to get to this next week. On the last day of the feast, the great day Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now I, 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 I there's, <laughs> there's lots we could say about that. Let me just say that I think what Jesus is calling for here is he's calling for faith out of the dead hearts of those people that are listening for him listening to him the question is not God's willingness to save the question is whether or not we are thirsty and so if you just heard me say that you need to trust in Jesus and you need to believe in Jesus and you may be feeling like well I want to but I just like I'm just my heart is tattered I don't even know if I have faith it's legitimate to pray this prayer that Lord I don't feel thirsty for you Please make me thirsty. Please make me thirsty. More on that next week. Verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. That's a capital P that's referring to a statement back in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy where Moses says that there's going to be this new prophet that comes. It's referring, I think, prophetically to the one who speaks the word of God ultimately, which is Jesus. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? And actually, that's true about Jesus, but they just didn't know Jesus as well as they thought they were. They were actually saying true things about Jesus, but not understanding that those true things that they were saying about Jesus were actually true of him. So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Note that. Note that there's some hidden hand going on there, making it unable for them to do what they wanted to do. The officers then came, verse 45, to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, why, who said to them, why did you not bring him? We sent you to arrest him, basically. Why, why are you coming back empty-handed? Verse 46, the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. In other words, these common people don't know what they're talking about. Why are you being influenced by them? You should have arrested him, ultimately, is what they're saying. And then, verses 50 through 52, notice this is a a kind of blast from the past in John. Remember that conversation Jesus had with a man famously in John chapter 3, Nicodemus, about what it means to be born again? He pops back up on the scene. He's a religious leader. Verse 50, Nicodemus, so remember, there's this con- the scene is, is these, these, these religious leaders are upset that the officers didn't arrest Jesus. And Nicodemus, seems like from the back of the room, Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, 
Essentially, he's saying, wait a minute now. Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So they're frustrated with Nicodemus, who's evidently displaying at least some, he's, some doubt. He's, he's still wondering if Jesus is the one who he says he is. So let's notice now as we end this chapter... Notice the hidden hand of God's providence. Look back at verse 30. They were wanting to arrest him. But it says, No one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Look again at verse 44. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. There seems to be this implicit sense that there is something holding them back from doing what they wanted to do. In fact, it's sort of even borne out in conversation. They send officers to arrest him. They come back empty-handed. Why didn't you do anything? Well, because he he taught with authority, and it just kind of, we couldn't do it. And then Nicodemus sort of offering, wait a minute now, let's, let's hold on. Let's make sure we understand. Here's what I want you to see, is that nothing could happen to Jesus before the hour that the Lord had determined. Jesus is marching according to God's sovereign time. We read this last week at the beginning of the service, Acts chapter 2, verse 23, where Peter gets up on the day of Pentecost and he preaches after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. And he says that this Jesus was delivered up, listen to this now, according to the definite foreplan and knowledge, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Nothing happens to Jesus outside of the Lord's sovereign plan. And here's the application I want to make to us this morning as we conclude. Nothing happens to us as well that is outside of God's control. Because to be a Christian means that you are in Christ. You're one of His people. He's the head, we're the body. So if nothing happens to Jesus outside of the Father's control... Nothing happens to you that is outside of God's control. Nothing, absolutely nothing. Now let me soak you in some scripture that bears out this truth. I'm just going to read, I'm going to rattle off some scriptures from the Old and New Testament. Just soak in these passages that speak to this glorious truth. And we could read many more. I've chosen just a pinch of scripture. Uh, We've gotten into uh, HelloFresh you know, the meal service? So I, not only am I a fantastic baker of chocolate chip cookies, as you all well know, um, I've become a cook, and I'm a cook because I can read instructions. And often in the instructions on the recipe, just a pinch of salt. And that's open to interpretation, I understand that. But this is just a, friends, this is just a pinch of these truths in Scripture that we could read. Genesis 50, verse 20. Joseph being sold into slavery by his brothers, now in a position to save them from famine. And he says to them, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God uses the evil act of selling this brother into slavery to bring about the good providence of saving Israel from famine. Job 2.10, but this is Job replying to his wife that has told him, curse God and die. But he said to me, you're a foolish woman. 
She, he said to her, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? Job implicitly understanding that everything ultimately comes from God. He's sovereign. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Psalm 115 verse 3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Psalm 139 verse 16, your eyes, this is David speaking to the Lord in a prayer, a song, your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Friends, do you know that your days are numbered by the Lord? And everything that happens to you is written in God's book. We live in a culture of fear. We are obsessed with life. We're obsessed with longevity. The, the Lord, before you were formed in your mother's womb, knew the day of your birth, and He knows the day of your death. This does not mean that we should live haphazardly. We should honor the Lord with our bodies. But friends, nothing can take your life until the Lord says it's your day. And if you're a believer, that day happens is not a day for woe, but it means that you will be with the Lord forever. Back to the text. Proverbs 16.4, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Proverbs 21.1, just more truth about the sovereignty of God over all things in His providence. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and He turns it wherever He wills. Isaiah 46, 9, I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel, counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Lamentations 3, verse 37, who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord commanded it? Is not from the mouth of the most, is it not from the mouth of the most high that good and bad come? Friends, you need to have that truth in the quiver of your theological perspective. Listen to Romans chapter 8. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of Romans chapter 8 before. I refer to it occasionally here. It's a glorious chapter in the Bible. And if you haven't read Romans chapter 8, don't let the sun go down on this day until you read Romans chapter 8. You will be blessed. Listen to what Paul says. His perspective on the sovereignty and providence of God in all things good and bad, sweet and painful. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And all, to that we would all say a kind of easy amen. He's just saying heaven's going to be better than this broken world. No controversy there. Okay, we got you, Paul. But he continues, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. In other words, we're waiting for that time when we will be finally and fully glorified and free from everything that plagues us. Okay, no controversy. We got you, Paul. But now verse 20, Paul interjects a truth into this which really, really ups the ante. He says in verse 20, For the creation was subjected to futility. Somebody's acting on creation. Somebody's doing something to creation. Somebody's giving creation over to something. It was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope 
that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So what Paul is saying is somebody's acting on creation, somebody's giving creation over in a sense to itself, and what is the motivation of this subjection? The motivation of this subjection is the rescue and the future glory of this creation that was subjected to the futility. Now who would do that? Who could do that? Could we do that? Could we give ourselves over to futility in the hope that it would ultimately end up better for us? No, we don't have that capability. Could our enemy, the devil, do that? No, why would he subject us to futility in the hope that it would end up better for us? That's not his motivation. So the only alternative for the one doing the subjecting in Romans chapter 8 is God himself. God himself. The same one who controls the Son and subjects the Son to the cross is the same one that controls every suffering that we go through in our lives today. That's why Paul concludes a few verses later in verse 28 that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those, all things work together for good. And that's why Tyler read this morning from James chapter 1. Verses 2, let me just read a few verses that he read. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials, meet trials of various kinds. You might just think, well, that's just a random thing of life. You know, this world is chaotic, and it's spinning out of control, and you're getting, man, bad stuff's going to happen. But no, 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 there's a kind of hidden purpose behind it all. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We see the hidden hand of providence, even in this text in James, that there's some purpose that God is intending to bring about even as you meet seemingly random various trials along the way. This is the testimony of Scripture, friends. Nothing that you face, no doctor's diagnosis, no layoff, no lack of promotion, no relational discord, no rebellious child, nothing that we face if you're in Christ is outside of God's control and not intended for your ultimate good. It is. Friends, that's the truth that I want us to see. Let's end with just this question and two answers quickly. How does this understanding of God's good providence help us live? How does this help us live? Well, first, we can rest in God's goodness in whatever comes our way. Now, friends, I want to admit <clears throat> this is one of those things that's easy to say in a sermon on a Sunday morning, and it's much harder to live out in a doctor's office or a divorce court on Tuesday morning. But it is nevertheless true we can rest in God's goodness in whatever comes our way in trials. We can rest in God's goodness. Either this is true or all of these verses are hollow. And if that's the case, then let's stop playing the charade and let's all go home and take a nap. But it is true. And, and let's just admit the challenge of the Christian life is having this theology that seems to hover so high in the heavens and actually seeing it and grabbing a hold of it 
and applying it to our hearts in that moment of despair and confusion. Friends, there just is no short, there's no shortcut to that. And there's no perfect execution of that. Because this is true does not mean that we won't get that feeling in the pit of our stomach when the phone rings, right? We're humans. We're sad. We're confused. We're angry. But here's what this truth tells us, that when those things come our way, we remember this truth and we need each other and we, we link arms and we limp and we crawl and we cry our way to the Father who is good. He's good. And he has, he has orchestrated this system not so that we would endure all of these trials perfectly so that on the other end of them we can come out and say, aha, we can be like the buzz light year of the spiritual world. Like, look at me. Friends, that's not it. Because when we struggle and we strain and we cry and we wring our hands, but we still go to God, you know what that does? It shines the light on the goodness of the Father, not on the strength of the child. So we can rest in that. And finally, we can pray and we can give ourselves away. You might be tempted to think, well, why pray? If God is sovereign, if my days are ordained, if everything happens according to his sovereign providence, why pray? Well, I think that's a legitimate question. And I think the Bible answers that question by not saying, if God is sovereign and in control of the future and has determined the end from the beginning... It doesn't answer that question by saying, if that's the case, then why pray? It actually says, because that's the case, now you should pray. In fact, you can pray. Because you're praying to the one who, and don't ask me to explain this in a human, philosophical way, the one who is so sovereign in such an inscrutable way that he uses our prayers to bring about, to be part of the means by which he actually brings about the future that he's already promised. And you say to me, Brad, that is philosophically impossible from a human perspective. I know! And isn't that great news that the world does not, does not operate according to human philosophical standards? It operates according to the standards of a God who says, I am God and there is no other. Come to me, all of you who are heavy laden. <laughs> Every time I preach on the providence of God, I look at your faces and I think of stories of people in this church who have and are currently enduring great pain. And I, I want you to grab a hold of this doctrine. I want you to rest in it. I'm not asking you to completely understand it, because I certainly don't. I'm asking you to rest in it, dear one. Rest in it, no matter what the doctor says. No matter what the teenager does. No matter what the boss says. 
no matter what the unbelieving spouse does, rest in the goodness of God towards you, dear one. Let's pray. Lord, take this truth and use it for our good. Make us more like Christ. And anyone in this room that does not yet know you, Lord, would you, earlier on, when I was describing what Jesus has done, would would you use that news to open their minds to see that only you can reconcile us to you? Would they cry out for water, the water of Christ? And would you satisfy their soul? In Jesus' name.